We're at the home of rugby, world rugby, let alone English rugby. We're at Twickenham with head groundsman Keith Kent. Keith, firstly, thanks very much. Um, we know you're very busy in the build-up to a World Cup, or, which is starting here on the 18th of September. Um, rolling back a bit, though, you didn't actually start out in, in rugby. I think you started out um, at Leicester City, served, I think, was it 17 years there? 17 years at Leicester City, yes. And then moved on to some great times, I'm sure, at Manchester United with um, Alex Ferguson there. Was he manager, I guess, for your entire career there? My entire he? career, yes. He got there a year before I got there in 86. I got there in 87. So a lot of success. I guess the Sky years have been a big part of, of your football career and you mm. saw some changes there. But what I'd like to focus on is, is the rugby side of things, especially with the World Cup um, right on the doorstep here. What drew you to take this role here at Twickenham and tempted you away from Old Trafford? Because that must have been one hell of a, a thing to pull you away. It was, and it was, a, it was something I wasn't expecting or, or wanting to do. The RFU approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in coming to the Twickenham Stadium. And United were playing away in Europe, and I thought it'd be rude of me not to, so I came for an interview. Right. And I came down and I fell in love with the stadium, it's fantastic. And I spoke with Richard Knight, my director, who told me about the plans for the stadium, the new South Stand, the introduction of rock and roll concerts, and one or two other bits and bobs. But the thing that really got me, the hook, was that he said to me, what we'd like is you to go out into the game and help the local clubs all over the country. Wow, okay. And I, I, I drove home, and it's a good four, four and a half hour drive, and all that time, at this, that was the hook. Okay. And I thought, I could have one hell of a job here at the home of rugby, seeing all the big games, but also traveling the country helping the, the, the little people and helping the clubs to play rugby on better surfaces. Well, you're very high profile in what you put back into the game and the, the fact that that was an attraction is, is a credit to you. Um, there are obviously some real key differences between the world of football and the world of rugby, just in terms of, one, I guess, the finances involved with the Premier League, two, some of the personalities and maybe the demands on a, uh, a football coach as opposed to a rugby coach, and your relationship with managers and and those guys above, I guess, is somewhat different. Yes, it, it is. The England managers, every England manager I've had, I've got on really well with. They're very, very professional. And if you approach them and, and ask them not to do such and such, or can they use the far side of the pitch, they are very amenable. And the rugby players are very, very polite, very, very knowledgeable. They understand things about pitches and somehow they understand the weather better. If it's been chucking it down with rain all week, they expect the pitch to be wet. And with our new pitch, if it's dry, they compliment you. They say, wow, okay. this has drained well. Whereas in football, it, it's almost a cocooned living and the players play on the best surfaces every week now, it seems. Yeah. And the training facilities, which to the credit of, of the football clubs, the, the training facilities are out this world in comparison to the day I started work at Leicester City. The machinery, the drainage, and the technology is 45 years on. And in terms of the day-to-day -day job, apart from the kind of the whole th circus that surrounds football and rugby, what are the key differences in looking after a, a rugby pitch to a, a football pitch at the highest level? There is not that much different because the basics are the same. The basics are the same that we need it to drain, 
we need to present it well and we need it to play well in football they play on a shorter cut grass yep. something around 25 millimeters we can play up to 40 millimeters in height in grass because the ball is not rolling it, the players are running about what they're after is traction so the drier surface I can give them for the ball to be dry in the hand and also underfoot so that they can keep the traction and then the game is much quicker and much better as a spectacle. So the key difference is the football pitch is wet Yes, and your, your rugby pitch is dry. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, when I was at Old Trafford we had some fantastic wingers and we wanted them to have the ball fizzing about yeah. so we used to irrigate as much as we could so that the, the grass was wet and the ball was slick and when you've got Giggsy or Konchelskis running at you, you, you're frightened to death. So that, that's the difference. So there's a good analogy there is in terms of football. Is there anything you can do to a pitch that may favour one team over another? I'm not suggesting you have done. But. <laughs> Would I? <laughs> in football, the, the only thing you may do is irrigate up to okay. half-time or during half-time. But other than that, not really. It's the same for both sides. Okay. And, I, and I think... I think that's what's so good about the FA Cup is that you know you can be playing away at the back of beyond and you're the biggest team in, in England but you've got to play on that pitch and it's a good leveller. A moment ago you referred to the developments in technology you know, 45 years on. What do you think have been the key technology advances that you've seen over the years of, of professional groundsmanship? I th perhaps threefold. One the technology and the knowledge now of sand. Right. When I was a kid, we put lots and lots of sand on pitches and I didn't really know why we were doing it. <laughs> now we've got to such a stage that we know what shape the sand is, what size the sand is, and exactly in what position in the profile the sand should be. So that is a vast step forward. Okay. The other thing is aeration. The, the, the invention of the vertidrain and the like, the yep. new Wiedemann machines, uh, some of the Sysis equipment, the slitters, you know, I, I could fill the stadium with spikers. <laughs> and, and that is a big step forward. When I was a kid, we used to spike the pitch with a Sysis outfield once a month right. with a slitter. You know, now you could do it once a month with a vertidrain or a Wiedemann and we know what it's doing and why it's doing so aeration is the other big thing okay and the biggest boon in the whole of the game in the last 20 years has been the the lighting systems right okay the SGL lighting system I first saw it in Sunderland 2003 January right and I was absolutely amazed. They'd got it on an 18-yard box, and the 18-yard box had 95% grass coverage, and it was January. And I think the groundsman was feeding it with a 12.09 in January. Good grief. Yes, okay. and it was like, wow. And I think, I think that is perhaps, that's turned a key that we could, we could manage pitches better I mean, you get to December and January, in the worst months of the year, the three worst months of the year, December, January and February, they're not as daunting as they used to be okay. because you've got the light at the end of the tunnel. When you came over from football to rugby, I presume you bought some of your expertise, that's why you were bought in, that, and technology and 
tricks that you'd used in at Old Trafford and Leicester. What were the key things that you transferred across? I think I think perhaps uh, we we cut the grass shorter. We cut the grass shorter. The grass was a lot longer when I first got here. And Clive Woodward spoke to me, and he, and he asked if we could have a fast track, and I okay. said yes, of course. So we shortened the grass, and we made sure that with more aeration, it would be drier, given any typical Saturday in the autumn. Sure. So perhaps aeration, more aeration, uh, cutting the grass shorter, and really, I think I'm very lucky. I've got a really good staff. Ian Aylin, my deputy, is a really, really good groundsman in his own right. And him and I bounce ideas off one another. We discuss fertiliser plans. We, we discuss how we're going to approach the season. We approach how we approach this World Cup. And yes, it's my decision and it's, it's my neck on the line if it goes wrong. But it's nice to have a, a sounding board, a good groundsman to sound things off and we have Andy Muir our third member of staff who's a really good worker and who laughs at me in the end because we're going about all these technical <laughs> things and he says come on let's just cut the grass <laughs> and it's and it's a good if, if I brought I think I think the biggest step was the introduction of the lighting rigs okay and just touching on the size of your team here and the total size of the team that you have on a uh, should we call it a non-cup non-world cup year Mm -hmm. What would that be? 95% uh, of the time it's Ian, Andy and myself. Right. And on Saturday we have two Saturday lads. Okay. We're in the 30s by the way. But we okay, call you them, still call them lads. We call them Saturday <laughs> lads. And they help out after a game. Okay. And we've de developed a technique where we play the game on a Saturday. As soon as the game is finished we get on and hoover the pitch. Right. We take off all the debris we can, we cut the grass so that the grass is stood upright and in, and in readiness for next week's game. That's okay. now the target. We then fetch the lighting rigs in from outside and by four hours after the end of the, the final whistle, the pitch is in complete recovery. And I think that's important because one, I can go home and sleep easy knowing that I've done everything I can and that the grass is getting ready for next week. And it also buys you time that if there has been a bad scrummage or there has been something gone wrong that's, you know, for whatever reason, sometimes the referee will play a scrum four or five times in the same place. And you come in on the Sunday morning and you might th just throw a bit of grass seed onto that area. Not that it's bare, but just so that that grass will be growing under our lights for the next month and in a month's time it will be brand new again. Okay. Um, so with the World Cup, do you get any extra help? We've got, uh, we've took on Phil, one of the Saturday lads, full time until November. Right. So okay. that we've got, the, the, the thing with the World Cup is it's a six weeks and it's a marathon. It's a marathon, fantastic tournament and I'm really excited. <laughs> and, but it's a, you, you don't want to wear yourself out mentally or physically in September because you've got the whole of October to go. I'm really lucky we here host 10 games in six weeks which is phenomenal and I'm, I'm so looking forward to it now because 
it's just going to be the best experience the going worldwide into people's living rooms who don't usually watch sport rugby takes it to places in the commonwealth yeah. and in the world that you don't usually go to and i can't wait i, I can't honestly it would be fantastic to have it at home and if england do mm. well even better and i'm sure you'll you'll share some of the, the celebrations for that if we can just touch a little bit more on some of the other technological advances um, that have happened in the game. One of those is, is Deso and hybrid pitches. Um, obviously had a huge impact on football. How do you judge their impact on, on the game of rugby, both now and possibly in the future? It's interesting because when I first got here to Twickenham, we had a fibre sand pitch. Yeah. And the fibre sand pitch was very, very good and played very well. And then as it got older, it became less effective. And we began, we, we began looking around four years ago for a new pitch. And I looked at the, I, I knew about fiber sand and I looked at fiber elastic. Yeah. And I visited Glasgow Rangers, Newcastle United. And Ian and I went across to the Aviva to have a look at the Aviva, which at that time was fiber elastic. And I knew in the back of my mind, I was trying to better Desso. Right. That's what I wanted to do. Not for any devious reason, but that that was the that was the the, the, the benchmark. Yeah, and as a top groundsman, you're going to need to move forward, aren't you? And after I've done all the miles, I visited Tottenham Hotspur, Arsenal, <laughs> and Wembley, and decided I'm going desperate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the the advantage it gives you is that it drains so well. Drainage. Okay. The weather is the biggest thing in my life. Is the weather. The stability that the strands of polypropane give you is phenomenal. The scrummage is a mean, mean thing for turf. I, I think it's second only to perhaps going over a, a ground with horses. Right. Because you think of the compaction and the, of the traction and the power and yeah. the weight of two scrums. Yeah. It's phenomenal. And we're asking a grass plant that's, that's it's in December, doesn't really want to be played on, it might have had frost on in the morning and then Keith Kent's put water on <laughs> in the afternoon. It's baffled. The Deso system just takes away the heartache the, the and the pain that it's going to give way. We can wear a Deso pitch out, you could play on it when it's bare, yeah. but it still will not cut up and it will not divot. So that is the, and I think the Deso system, there's new systems coming into play. Yeah. The, uh, the cis grass that Alan Ferguson's had put in at yeah. uh, St. St. George's. St. George's. Yeah, he was telling us about that recently. Actually. Yeah, I, I've been speaking to Alan myself right. because that's what I do. I, I, keep, okay. I try and keep up with technology. And I, and I just feel that at this present time, the DESO is the best system in the world. So moving back to the game of rugby itself then. Um, Rugby has developed over the last few years from the fans' perspective into a more dynamic running game. Yeah. Um, you've already touched on you know, how pitches can affect that. Do you think the standard of groundsmanship and the quality of the pitches that are now being produced at the elite level have actually contributed to that? Or has it been a demand from the coaches to deliver the pitches that can deliver that kind of game? I, I, think, I think the groundsmen in this country are the best groundsmen in the world. Yeah, I'd agree with Bar none. If, if you put a DVD on from Euro 96, 
and see the pitches in Euro 96, nearly 20 years ago, yeah. and the Villa, Forest, Anfield, I was at Old Trafford, Wembley, they were absolutely magnificent, game after game after game. In the last 20 years we've learned more about San, we've learned more about Desso, and, we've gone, and everything's come together to give us this, this where, we, where we, we're almost providing the stage, it's the backdrop, it's the London Palladium. And that, the groundsman's job is to present that to the nation, whether it be on television or in the stands. Yeah. And for the players, it's got to be safe, it's got to have good traction, and they've got to feel comfortable on it. And I think we've achieved all of that. And I think we've achieved it by the dedication and the ability of the British groundsmen, the English groundsmen, to learn and to put that into practice. Because it, it isn't a nine to five job. You have to practice and you have to experiment. And, it, and the, the, in fairness to the people in this country, the manufacturers of some of the aeration machines, some of the mowers, you know, 20 years ago, nobody had a hoovered the pitch afterwards. <laughs> but we do now, you watch Match of the Day, and there's a team of men walking up behind every cameraman who's doing an interview at the end of the game. There's something happening, isn't there? There's something happening. Yeah. Whereas when I was a kid at Leicester City in the 70s, the game finished and we used to divot the pitch and I was in the bar an hour afterwards. <laughs> Good time. <laughs> <laughs> so professionalism is involved as well yes. over, the, <laughs> over the years. Um, you already mentioned that part of your attraction to the role here at Twickenham was working with groundsmen at you know, lower levels and all levels. Um, so that's obviously something that excites you, but how does that actually manifest itself? What do you do? What I do is, is, is because the way the RFU is set up, it's such a fantastic game, and it is all ran from Twickenham. Right. So I'm at the hub, and I've got a fantastic staff in Ian and Andy. So what we do is we set perhaps five weeks of the year where I go out on the road. There are six regions in the country who have a facilities manager. Right. And I team up with him and we go out on the road for four days. And in them four days we can perhaps visit 20 to 25 clubs, whether it be in Cumbria or Cornwall yeah. or Dover in Kent. And we set out that I visit as many clubs as I can in a day. And I have a whale of a time. It's hard work, yeah. but, but the clubs are so receptive and so re appreciative of my time and the RFUs. The RFU yeah. know where I am. Ian Ritchie, Richard Knight know where I am. And I go in and I meet the groundsman and I, I, I evaluate what Kitty's got. Right. Because it's no good me jumping up and down saying the pitch is compacted if he's got a hand fork. Sure. Okay. So it's, it's meeting the groundsman, making friends with the groundsman, sat down with a cup of tea. I think groundsmen are the best team makers in the world. <laughs> and just seeing what they've got and how we can improve it. For instance, I've been to two or three clubs and they don't know where to buy paint from. They okay. go to B&Q on a Saturday morning and get some emulsion. So right. straight away I put them in touch with a supplier. Okay. I go to other clubs and they're, they're using somebody like Fleet and I'm chuffed to bits for them and that's a great paint. Well done lads. Yeah. And I'll say, do you aerate the pitch? 
not really we haven't got one do you want to hire one in can we c put you in contact the pitch is full of weeds why don't you phone complete weed control these yeah. some of these little clubs have no comprehension of what is out there i guess you're in the main at that level dealing with volunteers yes so the volunteers are the lifeblood of our game yeah. and we've just created a, a groundsman's connect where they can e email a, a request in a question a daft question where would you get a bag of seed from at this time of the year and it's fed through to me and i get back to the club obviously yeah. it takes a bit of time if i'm not sat at my computer when obviously, it comes through yeah. but the, we, we really are serious about helping the junior clubs because they are the lifeblood so essentially a volunteer groundsman anywhere in the country can pop an email in and keith kent yes the main man at the home of rugby yes will give your opinion yeah and i enjoy doing it and and i've had i've had some fantastic fantastic days on the road hard days i mean i I've, i think i was in bridlington on the pitch at nine o'clock at night and the lads were training <laughs> And I was digging holes in the pitch and they were throwing balls around the head. <laughs> and on another occasion, we were in Durham and we, it was the January and it had been chucking it down with rain and we'd been all the way up to uh, Berwick-on-Tweed to start the day. And we worked our way down to Durham and we got to the hotel and we went into this restaurant and we were being served by ladies in Elizabethan dress. And, I th and we were sat there in as rags. And the next morning, because it was daylight by then, I was staying at Lumley Castle. <laughs> and I, and I, I, honest to God, didn't know whether I was in a Premier Inn or where I was. Thought you were dreaming. <laughs> or a nightmare, but, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that is... And the clubs, are they're so... They're so receptive and they're so grateful. And it's great to help people. And I get back in and, and, and clubs from two or three years ago will send me pictures of their remedial work. Keith, we used under a ton of sand this year. Brilliant. And we got it from so-and-so, so-and-so. And it's worked. And they send me pictures. And you can't buy that. Well, I was just going to say, for somebody whose attraction to the job was helping people across you know, the wider world of rugby, uh, that's got to be a real kind of payback for you. It, really it is, else. but it's also, I think it, I've got to give credit to the RFU. It isn't done begrudgingly. Okay. It's, Ian Ritchie will come up to me and say, I was at such and such a club, and the, and the secretary said to me, we had your Keith here the other day, and it was great to see him. Brilliant. Okay. So the feedback to the RFU and the warmth that comes with it is reciprocated that, yes, we want to get out there, I've not been able to get out as much this year, for obvious reasons, with the, with the World Cup coming up. Sure. But it's not been for the one to try in. We were, we're talking there about your personal involvement and your kind of hands-on with groundsmen around the, the wider world of rugby. I think the RFU has a number of schemes that you're involved in, uh, some of them on the advice level, and some of them actually about you know, recommending or helping with advice on certain bits of kit. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. We, we went into the game and uh, there's six facility managers and they got together and said some of the things that Keith's recommended is fantastic why don't we help the clubs right so I agreed with them and I got involved and I said well look let's approach some manufacturers 
Sizes. I mean sizes. I go around the country and if I go to five clubs in a day, there's two of them got a bit of orange kit in the edge that they don't know what it is. <laughs> and it's an early Roman Sizes. <laughs> and and it's it's so well built and such good kit, it's still there. And we approached Sizes who came through with the quadruplay, some brushes and their multi-tiner, fantastic. So we needed some mowers, so we approached Ransom's Jacobson's okay. for mowers and tractors. Because I go to a lot of clubs, I went to Beverly Rugby Club, and the guy says, I've got a tractor, he said, but it's too big. And I said, let's have a look at it. And he opened the shed doors, and it filled the shed. <laughs> and I said, when do you use that? And he said, June. <laughs> okay. So it was, it was, it was useless. Right. So we, we got a 23 horsepower tractor with a three point linkage. And, and the, laughingly, they put together the Keith Kent package. Yes. You've heard the Keith <laughs> yeah. Kent package. Yeah. And these three bits of kit went out to the market and we helped to fund them and the companies came in and really, really sharpened the pencils for us because they could see that there was a market for them out there that nobody had ever tapped at. So it was a win-win situation for the manufacturers and for the rugby clubs and for the RFU because we were seen to be helping people with, with grants, with opportunities to meet people who know what they're talking about and the Sizes guys and the, uh, the Ransoms guys were fantastic in the way they demonstrated the equipment, the way they put the equipment together, and the, and the lessons that they taught and the information they passed on, but also the phone numbers. If it's a Saturday morning you're struggling, phone me. Okay. And it's such a good scheme and the clubs, and, I, and I'm really proud of the RFU that you know, we, we, we've got, I think we've got 2,000 clubs just over. And we, we're in at all these clubs trying to help them. And I think that is such a big thing. So I think if I sum that up then, I think you've got practical advice and real help with funding the kit that you need to produce quality playing surfaces for the wider world of, you know, yes. rugby. Yes. That's, that's a fantastic thing for you to be involved in and audits for that. And. I spoke to Rigby Tailors and Rigby Tailors came on board and supply fertiliser at a reduced rate and their biggest brands of grass seed at a reduced rate to rugby clubs because we can not buy as a, or bulk buy rather, I can't do it no. but if there's 40 clubs buying seed who weren't buying it two years ago, that's, that's on, much yeah. better that's and it's better for the clubs. Better for everybody isn't it? Everybody. That's the old win-win. You're one of what some people would term the Hollywood groundsman, the star, <laughs> the elite. Um, I know other groundsmen all do speak to one another. I, I assume you're exp sharing your experiences with those guys, and that's obviously very valuable to you. Um, I might just suggest that perhaps one of the themes that's coming out of this interview is that sharing that information and, and talking to your peer group and, and the other guys around you is something that you would say is very important to develop yes. as a groundsman. Yes, I, I would say so. The, the 
groundsmen at the elite end have got there through dedication and hard work and are there a long time because of their knowledge and their skill. Every groundsman I have ever met will always pass that skill and knowledge on. All of them. Allied to that we've got three fantastic organisations. We've got Bigger which is the golf world but you can learn a lot talking to anybody. We're talking grass and drainage. The IOG for many many years were looked down upon and frowned upon because they were almost the old man's you know, I'm now becoming an old man, but they were yeah. almost, you know, there were people walking about with Lord Mayor's chains on. Right, okay. Whereas now they're a forward-looking, go-getting organisation. Jason's doing a fantastic yeah. job. A really, really good job. And I get a lot of comments from your peer group. Yes. They all to a man say that Jason's doing a, a, yeah. a great job. Yeah, it, it's, I attended a seminar up in Leeds and it went fantastic really really good pitchcare.com new kids on the block I think that shook the IOG up yeah and I think that that is going really well Dave Saltman ex-groundsman Wolverhampton yeah. Wanderers you know really really down-to-earth basic groundsman but with a lot of knowledge to share and I think the industry's got a lot going for it and I think that we're becoming more and more appreciated because you take this summer, we've had fantastic test series, yeah. we've had a fantastic Wimbledon. The Open, despite the, what the Scottish weather could yeah. throw at it, was fantastic. And hopefully, fingers crossed, he says, <laughs> the World Cup will go well. <laughs> I don't think you need your fingers crossed, Keith. I really don't. So you, you mentioned the World Cup there, so let's, let's focus on that a little bit now for the, the last part of the interview here. Um, starts here at Twickenham on the 18th of September. I know you're pretty excited about that. There are 12 other venues that are involved in the World Cup. Um, they all have their own unique set of conditions and uh, yeah. they've all got their own grounds teams. Some of them are rugby orientated, some of them are not. Um, yeah. You've got a, a role, as I understand it, that's liaising with those guys and helping them. Can you just give us a bit of what that involves and, and how you're trying to help them? I wouldn't ever try to tell another groundsman how to do his job. But what I did think was that the captains run to the things that are out the ordinary. When you're a, a football groundsman, they turn up Saturday dinner time and you kick off three o'clock and they've gone by six o'clock. Yeah. In rugby, we have captains runs and they're allowed for an hour and a half on the pitch on a Friday, both teams. Right. So that's three hours, not rugby, it's not competitive, they're not allowed to do scrumming, scrummaging, but it's something different. And I, I, I was sort of aware that this might be new to some of the lads out there. And I know most of the lads out there. So along with Rugby World Cup, we invited them to the South Africa game last season. And they came down on the Friday and they watched the South Africa captains run on the Friday afternoon. The lads were invited on the pitch afterwards to see if there was any damage. And thankfully there wasn't, which reassured one or two people. We then went out, had a drink and a meal, and they came to the game on the Saturday, and once again, they came onto the pitch afterwards, and they went home a lot happier having seen it. Because rugby has this reputation that it's gonna cut the pitch up and it's gonna be this, that, and the other. At the level we're talking, a football pitch will withstand a game of rugby easily. Right. Especially the Desso ones, but easily. 
and the skill and the knowledge of those groundsmen are just so good that it will not affect them. But I just felt it's the unknown. Yeah. It's the unknown. When I came here, when I came here, the first game we played was New Zealand. But I'd experienced it at Old Trafford. We had a New Zealand England game at Old Trafford in '97, and the captain's run was new to me. And I was more worried about that than the game. Yeah. Once the game kicks off, we ain't got silly cones on the pitch, and we're not <laughs> running round boxes, and we're not. The game's easy. It's the warm-ups and the captain's run that they may have been worried about. We've spoken about hybrid pitches. Synthetic surfaces is something that's constantly doing the rounds in the, the elite level of football in terms of yeah. becoming more and more part of the game. Should yeah. it be, shouldn't it be? Recent Women's World Cup where obviously all the games are on synthetic mm. surfaces. We won't go into the, you know, the details of whether that no. is right or wrong. But focusing on rugby, do you feel synthetic surfaces have a, a role to play at the elite level? I'm biased in so much as I'm a groundsman and I prefer natural pitches. But the Saracens and Newcastle have gone artificial yep. with good reason, sound business reason. And in Newcastle's circumstances, I mean, the only thing that grows in Newcastle is the groundsman old, I learned. <laughs> okay. You know, the, you've got to take into consideration the weather conditions and the amount of usage yeah. that you get. And in rugby, we've got 30 players on the pitch. You know, so it's a lot of, for 80 minutes, nearly yeah. 90 minutes by the time they've finished playing. So I can understand us going that way. I just, uh, from rugby's point of view, as long as the head impact and the burning's been taken away, which it has, I understand, I think the rugby with a, a, a dry, clean ball, it's fantastic. The speed of the rugby these days is phenomenal. If you put an old DVD on, 20 years ago the pace of the game is so much the players are fitter yeah so I think being a groundsman you've got to take your hat off and say in our game there is a place for artificial pitches but at the top top international level I hope we always play on natural pitches okay thank you for that um, moving back to your stadium here your home of rugby apart from rugby you host a number of other events some of which is uh, I think uh, pop concerts and rock concerts. I understand you're a Stones fan. Yes, yes, very um, much so. Two questions come out of that. What problems and issues does the, the concert season give you here? And secondly, have you had the chance to see the Stones play at your, your venue yet? <laughs> the first concert ever in the stadium, 2003, was the Rolling Stones. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> Were you a fan before? Oh yes, okay. yeah. I have been a Stones fan since the, the 60s. My elder brother bought the records and I listened to them. Right, okay. And I've become the, the fanatic. I've been all over the world to see the Rolling Stones. I love the Rolling Stones. So having them here on your turf must oh, have been special. Yeah. It was awesome. They've, they've played here four nights now, two in 2003 and two in 2006. As regards pop concerts, I, I, I'm, I'm a groundsman, I'm a, I'm a proper groundsman. If, if my bosses say to me, we're going to have a pop concert, if I jump up and down and cry and say, you know, you're not, I ain't going to win. No. So I think uh, as a tip to all groundsmen is say, okay, if that's what we're doing, what's the best way we're going to do it? Okay. Let's manage what we're going to do. 
let's find out how heavy the stage is, how big the stage is, how many people are going to be stood on the pitch or are they going to be seated on the pitch? What are we going to allow on the pitch? Whether it be merchandising or food or and manage it. And once you've done that, the pop concert becomes one of the best weeks of the year because right. it's so far removed. Yeah. It's like a busman's holiday. <laughs> it, it's incredible. I, I, I've got to say, the RFU, we do things properly in, 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 in alliance with the promoters. We talk to the promoters. This is what we want. This is what we will do. And touch wood, we've had some fantastic... The concerts, other than the Stones, of course, the concerts are almost getting in the way of a really good fortnight. <laughs> You've got 40, 50 people building a stage yeah. where they come out and they've got one bit of metal and stick it in the middle of the pitch and build. And within a week, there's this fantastic stage with lights and smoke and fireworks. And then within three days, it's on a lorry and gone. So you, I think in life, you have to enjoy whatever's thrown in front of you, try and enjoy it. And I've seen some wicked concerts here. The Stones, obviously, are my favorites. But we've had U2, we've had Lady Gaga, which I wouldn't see Lady Gaga, <laughs> I wouldn't know her. But it was two fantastic nights. We had Iron Maiden here. You've never seen so many black t-shirts in your life. <laughs> but it was a fantastic night and we enjoyed it. And you never struggle for a ticket, obviously. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I used, they usually let me in. <laughs> um, Keith, fantastic interview. I've got you know, a couple of questions left to ask you. One would be, if you had a golden rule for any groundsman out there, whatever level, what would that be? Never roll with anything heavier than your mowers. And aeration, aeration, aeration. That's the key. Two golden rules. Two golden rules. <laughs> Two golden rules. Last question, which is our, our normal question on a Turf TV interview. Uh, and it's around who cuts the grass at home and what do they use to do it? Assuming you have grass, of course. Yeah, I've got a, a, a John Deere rotary, which I cut my back lawn with, and my back lawn is full of, full of thatch <laughs> <laughs> and a few weeds. Well, but, and again, I don't go home to cut the lawn. <laughs> no, you spend all day <laughs> looking after that and around the country. Keith, thank you very much. Thank Brilliant you. Interview.